0: Hebrews chapter 2. The message this morning is going to be sort of a continuation, or better put, part 2 of last week's message. So if you weren't here last week, you must listen to that message. You must somehow get your hands on that because these two messages very much go together as a package. There's multiple ways that you can get the message from last week. As you're leaving out the main doors, there's a little information desk on the right. You can go there and get a CD of the message or you can get a DVD of the message. You can go to our website, realitycarp.com and you could download the message for, three, for free there in an MP3 format. You can go to iTunes and uh, get the podcast and also a video cast on iTunes. So there's many ways for you to get the message. If you weren't here last week, You want to, when you leave the service, get the message, listen to it, because these two messages go together. Last week, we covered the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2, and we're just going to revisit one of the themes that came up during that message. I want us to just read uh, verses 1 and 2 in the first part of verse 3. It says, For this reason... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word once again this morning. We're thankful that in your word, we receive wisdom, insight, discernment, and knowledge for living. We're thankful that in your word, your heart is revealed to us, your ways, how you work, your character, your attribute. These things are revealed to us in your word, and it was so kind of you, God, to reveal yourself. Thank you that the greatest revelation of who you are is in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you, Jesus, that you came not to judge the world but that the world might be saved through you. Thank you for going to the cross and dying that substitutionary death. Thank you for rising from the dead and conquering death and sin in the devil. Thank you that you are ruling and reigning, seated on high. Thank you, Father, that you gave us the Holy Spirit to be with us while Christ is bodily absent. And thank you, Jesus, you are coming again to rule and to reign on earth. Thank you for these glorious truths that are distinctly Christian. They are distinct to the Bible. Thank you for these wonderful truths. And Lord, we still believe that your word is the very word of God, that it is inerrant and infallible and right and incorrect, correct in all it teaches. We ask that as a church, you would help us to rightly divide the word, to handle accurately the word of truth. We ask that you'd give us corporate wisdom in negotiating your word, corporate wisdom in interpreting your word. We ask that you would keep us anchored to the essentials of the faith and that you would allow us to have Meaningful dialogue, discussion, debate, study, investigation of those issues that are yet unsettled that we need to deal with. Lord, keep us united as a church, that you would allow no division in our midst, but we would fix our eyes squarely on you, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we would run hard for your glory in these last days. Bless us together now as we study your word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, last week, we spoke about the danger of drifting, the danger of drifting, and we mentioned that there is this tendency in our lives, isn't there? There is a tendency to drift from the truth of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews chapter 1 opens by saying, for this reason, what reason? Because of who Jesus is as explained in chapter 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Having that revelation of who Jesus is from Hebrews chapter 1, we are now obligated, nay, commanded by the word of God, to pay closer attention than we ever have to him. Lest... We drift away from him and from the truths associated with him. There is that tendency in us to begin to drift, and that was the topic of last week's message. And we also mentioned that this is an epidemic in the American church. It is perhaps the greatest sin that has beset the church in America is his tendency to drift and to be fully engaged in apathy. Sort of a contradiction of terms there. But to be altogether apathetic. And we also spoke about this fact that there are always consequences for drifting. Throughout the Bible, whenever God's people have begun to depart from God, there were always consequences for that. Throughout the Bible, we see that that is true. The problem with drifting is that if you drift long enough, it leads to disbelief. And once you enter into disbelief, you are only a moment away from apostasy. That is denying the faith, denying the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The danger with drifting is that it leads to disbelief and disbelief can lead to apostasy and apostasy can lead to shipwreck. That is the point. That I pressed upon us last week that apostasy, denying the faith, can lead to the loss of salvation. Now, that is an uncomfortable doctrine. That's an uncomfortable teaching. That isn't a fun idea, especially. Well, two reasons, really. Number one, and we addressed this last week, because we in the American church have been sold the bill of easy believism. That if you just intellectually agree with who Jesus is and what he did, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. We we came against that last week. So that makes it hard then for us to swallow this doctrine that a Christian can drift into apostasy and then lose his or her salvation. What makes it even more difficult is the personal dynamic because we all know people who have drifted away. And we all know people who seem to be to one degree or another, one way or another, denying the faith. We all know somebody like that. For some of us, it's our moms, it's our kids, it's family members. I know more than you do. Being a pastor for a decade, I've known hundreds who have drifted away. Not of all of them, of course, have gone into apostasy. But nevertheless, there is that danger. And so, in discussing the consequences of drifting last week, the main part of the message being a warning against drifting, part of that warning being the consequences of drifting, I shared with you that I believe, based on Hebrews 6, and we'll look at it again in a moment, That the Christian can lose their salvation if they go apostate. Now, that is the position that I hold right now. I need to say a few things about that position and the fact that I hold that position. Number one, I'm not dogmatic about it. That is to say, I'm not absolutely insistent upon it as an incontrovertible truth. I'm not gonna be dogmatic about it because as I said last week, it is a disputed interpretation. It's a disputed position. There are intelligent, Christ-loving Christians on both sides, really all sides of the issue. And so it wouldn't be right to be dogmatic on that issue. We don't have to insist upon that. We can hold that position. We can argue for that position. We can act according to that position. And that is my current position, but I'm not dogmatic about it. I'm open to learning. The other thing I want to say about us holding, or myself holding that position, is that we shall not divide over the issue. We shall not divide over the issue. It is not an essential of the historic Christian faith. It is not the type of issue that we would divide upon. When would we divide? We would divide on the issue of the deity of Jesus Christ. That's an essential of the historic Christian faith. We would divide upon... Jesus being the only unique savior of the world. That is an essential of the historic Christian faith. These are the type of issues that we would divide upon. Secondary issues are the gifts for today. Secondary issue. I believe they are. I will never divide with somebody on that issue. Free will and predestination. Secondary issues. I will not divide with somebody on that issue. The interpretation of Hebrews chapter 6 and the whole book of Hebrews. Secondary issue. I will not divide with somebody on the issue. You see, the church is suffering from too much division already. We need to be looking for viable biblical reasons to be united, not for so many to be divided. So church, we shall not divide on this issue. Whatever side of the issue you land on, I'm okay with you. I hope that you're okay with me. The third thing that I want to say about the fact that I hold this position is that this has not always been my position. I've changed my mind on whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation. Now, it makes us uncomfortable when our leaders change their mind. And I understand that. But let's think about it reasonably. If somebody never changes their mind, it must mean that they are perfect. Are we to think that somebody has perfect doctrine? Are we to think that I had perfect doctrine when I started teaching the Bible? Or are we to think that I have perfect doctrine at this current moment? I have told you on multiple occasions as your pastor that I will make mistakes. I have verbalized that to you. I have warned you of that fact. So I've changed my mind on this issue. And I think it's okay to change our minds. I think it's honest to change our minds. I think we need to be open to discovering, to be enlightened, to have uh, different things shown to us, to see things in a different but biblically correct way. The change in mind is not due to a particular book I read. I didn't get a book on the issue and read it, and oh, that changed my mind. Nor did I recently hear a teaching on the issue, and oh, that changed my mind. There is only one reason why I changed my mind, and that is because of my individual study of the scriptures. It is upon that that I've come to a new position, that Christians can indeed lose their salvation. Now... You guys must be Bereans. Bereans are those who were mentioned in Acts chapter 17. They were compared to the Thessalonians, those from Thessalonia. It says in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 that those in Berea were of more noble mind than those in Thessalonica. Because when Paul preached, they heard the word with joy, but they were examining the scriptures daily to see whether or not the things Paul said were correct. And the Holy Spirit says they were more noble of mind. They were right on. They were thumbs up. They were doing the right thing by listening to the Apostle Paul saying, yes, that's awesome. Now, let us check it out with the Bible. Every Christian must be a Berean. Do not follow me or any other man blindly. Do not ever do that. Jesus Christ is the only one you can trust. Jesus Christ is the only one. Everyone else is fallible, given to error. Everybody else will err in one way at one time or another. So the burden is upon you as individual Christians to always be Bereans, to be searching the scriptures for yourself. Now, having said that about the position I hold, the issue at hand is the eternal security of the believer. That's sort of the theological phraseology, the eternal security of the believer, also called the perseverance of the saints. That's sort of the Calvinistic uh, language, and we'll define that later. Perseverance of the saints, popularly referred to as the debate about once saved, always saved, or not. So, eternal security, perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved, or not. That's the issue at hand. And when we're talking about eternal security, we also need to mention the idea of assurance. Assurance. Security and assurance are two sides of the same coin. Assurance of salvation is the subjective side of the issue. Eternal security is the objective side of the issue. Or said differently, assurance of salvation deals with a feeling or sense or experience that one is saved. I totally believe I am saved. I sense it. I feel it. I've experienced God working in my life. I'm saved. I'm sure of it. I have assurance. The other side of the coin, that being subjective, the other side of the coin is objective, and that's eternal security. This relates to the ultimate fact, truth, and reality about the matter what the scriptures have to say, how we can know according to the clear scriptures as opposed to the fruit in our lives or the lack thereof or the feeling or the lack thereof. Now, there are four basic views when it comes to assurance and security. and We'll look at them very briefly. We're gonna look at two from a Calvinistic perspective and two from an Arminian perspective. Let's define those terms. Calvinism... Comes from the teachings primarily of a guy named John Calvin. John Calvin was a French theologian and he lived in the first half of the 1500s. John Calvin, French theologian, very influential, living in the first half of the 1500s. In the last half of the 1500s, there is a man whose name was Jacob Arminius. He was a Dutch theologian. Okay, from him has come, or from some of his teachings has blossomed the idea or the theological framework of Arminianism, and from John Calvin's teachings has blossomed the idea or the theological framework of Calvinism. Be careful when we say Arminianism, we are not talking about Armenians. That's a landlocked country in Eastern Europe. Okay, We're not talking about Armenians, though they've been influential in Christian history. We're talking about the theological framework that has spawned from the work of Jacob Arminius. Now, Calvinism and Arminianism are broad uh, theological systems. They deal with much more than eternal security, which is a question we're dealing with today. They deal with the very nature of the atonement, the very nature of the work of the cross, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe. How are we to understand whosoever? Did Jesus die only for those who are elect or did he die for the sins of every person in the world? These are issues that are dealt with through the theological framework of Calvinism and Arminianism, and they are on opposite ends of the spectrum. But they deal with a whole lot of theological issues. We're just looking at one issue that uh, we can gain some insight from through their teachings. Now, speaking about Calvinism and Arminianism, I am neither, and I loathe both the labels. I am neither, and I loathe both the labels, because, in my opinion, neither of them is completely honest to the scriptures. They're on the extreme ends of a spectrum. I'm neither a Calvinist nor an Arminius, and I don't like the label, so don't call me either one of them. If you call yourself one, that's fine. Just don't call me one of those. You see, there are points with which I agree with Calvinists and points with which I disagree. There are points with which I agree with Arminianists and points on which I disagree. When it comes to the debate of Arminianism and Calvinism, I am in the middle. I seek to have a balanced view. Now, when I say balance, I do not mean for the sake of balance. I'm not trying to toe the middle line. I'm not trying to unite the factors. I'm not trying to be Switzerland, theologically speaking. That is not what I'm saying. Oh, they're on these extreme ends and I'm just gonna, come on guys, let's all get along just meet in the middle and compromise. That's not what I'm saying. I seek to be balanced not for balance sake but because I believe the scriptures present a balanced view of the issues at hand. Okay? So for that reason, I seek to be balanced. For example, predestination of free will. Predestination and free will. They seem to be concepts on either end of the spectrum. Uh, They seem to be at odds with one another. On that issue, as a total aside now, just because I love you guys, I want to recommend a book to you by Norman Geisler called Chosen But Free, A Balanced View of Divine Election*. If you're wondering about that dichotomy, uh, how do we balance predestination and free will, this is the single best book I could recommend to you. We carry it at our bookstore here. Uh, What's it called again? Oh, yeah. Chosen But Free, A Balanced View of Divine Election by Norman Geisler. It's my favorite work on the subject. But getting back to my point now, here's something that he says in that book that relates. Norman Geisler says in that book that on issues such as sovereignty and free will, Sovereignty and free will. These issues in the Bible are not always an issue of either or, but are often an issue of both and. In other words, it's not the Bible presents either predestination or free will. It's that the Bible presents predestination and free will. It's not either or, it's both and, and that's exactly what we see in the scriptures. They are both there. Both free will and the sovereignty of God, or better said, predestination. Scriptures teach both, and so there must be some way in which issues like that that seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum, there must be some way in which they interact There must be some way in which they connect. There must be some way in which the concepts are balanced because they're both there in the scriptures. Now, I believe that the same is true with the issue of eternal security and a Christian being able to lose their salvation. I believe that the Bible teaches both. And so what we don't have is a contradiction. What we do have is both And not either or. So, getting back to the fact that I would share with you four basic views on assurance and security. Here they are two from Calvinism, two from Arminianism, then I'll tell you where I land. First, we have strong Calvinism. Strong Calvinism. Strong Calvinists believe in the security of the elect. Okay? Once saved, always saved but they cannot at present be absolutely sure that they are among the elect, strong Calvinists would say. Each person, it is argued, can only prove his or her election by persevering until the end. That is... I'm a strong Calvinist. I believe that once saved, always saved, but I can't be positive that I'm saved now. I will only know if I keep the faith till the end, and if I keep the faith all the way to the end, then I was elect. I was truly saved, and once saved, always saved. That is the strong Calvinistic view. So they have security, but no assurance. Then we have Moderate Calvinism. Moderate Calvinists hold that they are eternally secure and can be presently sure of it. So hence they claim to have both eternal security and present assurance. Security and assurance. That sounds good. I like that one. That one sounds good. Then on the Arminius side. Now Arminians are divided into two groups, two basic camps. First, you have classic Arminians. Those are the ones that follow the teachings of Jacob Arminius, again, living in the last part of the 1500s. Later on, in the last part, or really all of the 1700s, we had a guy come along named John Wesley. John Wesley sort of modified Arminianism, so now we have Wesleyan Arminianism. So there's classic Arminianism and Wesleyan Arminianism, okay? Okay. Classic Arminianism teaches that once a person is truly saved, they can lose that salvation, but only by the sin of apostasy, a complete denial of Jesus Christ. And based on Hebrews 6, once someone has apostatized, they can never be saved again. So classic Arminianism teaches that there is assurance, but no security. The issue is apostasy and not just your run-of-the-mill sins. Run-of-the-mill sins is where the Wesleyan Arminians get off in my opinion. Wesleyan Arminianism argues that salvation can be lost but simply through any serious intentional sin. However, Unlike classic Arminianism, Wesley and Arminius believe that you can regain your salvation. So you can sin real bad and lose your salvation, and then you can repent and regain your salvation, and they teach that you can do that over and over again. So there, we have assurance, you can know that you're saved. I repented, I'm saved. I, I, I really believe that. But there's no security. And sin is the issue. It's very close to the Roman Catholic teaching concerning mortal sins as opposed to venial sins. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that you can lose your salvation if you commit mortal sins. If you read Roman Catholic uh, doctrine and writings about what a mortal sin is, it's just about everything that we do. (laughs) So it's very problematic. At least it would be for me. Now those are the four basic views. I would be somewhere between moderate Calvinism and classic Arminianism. That is to say, I believe in conditional security and that you can have assurance. Conditional security and that you could have assurance. Remember, moderate Calvinism says security and assurance, no possibility of loss. Classical Arminianism says assurance but no absolute security and the issue is not just sins. The issue is the sin of apostasy. And so what I would say is this. As long as you abide in Christ and continue to trust in Him for your salvation, you will have both security and assurance. As long as you abide in Christ and continue to trust in Him for your salvation, you will have security and assurance. If However, you cease to abide in Christ and you no longer trust in him for your salvation, you will lose that salvation because you've denied him as Savior. How else can one be saved? Again, we are not talking about the Christian who is struggling with sin and sinned really bad. I do not believe you can lose your salvation by sinning really bad. You can only lose it by denying Him as Savior and His work on the cross. Now, I believe that the balanced view that I've been alluding to is best spoken forth by Jesus in John 15. And we read this last week. When He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in Him, He bears much fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. I believe that's a balanced view. As long as you're hanging with me, Jesus says, everything is going to be okay. If you leave me, you're in trouble. I believe that the writer of Hebrews also offers this balanced view in the words that he gives us in Hebrews chapter 6. Again, we looked at this last week, but we'll see a new verse from it. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. Now, my argument is that that description in verses 4 and 5 of Hebrews 6 is about a Christian. There are some who argue, no, it's not talking about a Christian. My argument is that is speaking about a Christian. In fact, I would challenge you to find a better description of a Christian in the Bible. I believe that is one of the most clear and potent descriptions of a Christian In the Bible. So we're speaking about Christians. The whole book of Hebrews is written to Christians. So he says, in the case of a Christian, and then in verse 6, and then has fallen away, and the interpretation of fallen away is not merely backslidden for a day or two or a month or a year, but we're talking about apostasy. I'll define it again for you in a moment. We're talking about denying the faith. For the one who was once a Christian and then denied the faith, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance because they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The question comes up, what does it mean that it's impossible to restore them to impen- repentance? Repentance. I'm not sure. It might mean that once they've become a Christian and then they outright deny Jesus Christ that their hearts are so hard that they're just never gonna turn, or it might mean that God doesn't allow it. I'm not sure. We'll get to that in a moment. But the balance comes in verse nine then when the author of Hebrew says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things which accompany salvation, though we are speaking this way. In other words, he warns them explicitly and clearly. If you do not mature in the faith, if you do not move forward in the faith, if you drift in the faith into disbelief and apostasy, you will lose your salvation. But I have in mind better things for you, things concerning salvation. Stick with Jesus and everything will be okay. I believe that's the exact balance that Jesus struck in John 15. One quote here from a a good book says this. The New Testament authors write out of an experience of the grace of Christ and a firm conviction that they are on their way to a greater inheritance in heaven. At the same time, they write with a concern that they or their readers could apostatize and thus lose what they already have. So long as people are following Christ, they are supremely confident about them. Security and assurance as long as you are sticking with Jesus. Now, let's define a little further what we are and what we are not talking about and some of the thoughts that come to mind. Four considerations here. There is the person that was never saved but appeared to be and thought they were. There can be no discussion about this. This is very clear. Jesus, in many ways, spoke of the fact that there would be people in the church who were not truly born again. The tares among the wheat, counterfeits. This is all throughout the New Testament. Perhaps the most potent description of this, the most frightening one, though, is from Matthew 7. We looked at it last week. We'll read it again. Jesus says, starting in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? And I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Not that I once knew you and you lost it. This is written to those who were never saved. Maybe they thought they were, maybe they were just playing a game, but they were never truly born again. This is a great danger in America once again because the pulpits have soft-pedaled the gospel and led us into easy believism. If you'll just raise your hand, if you just fill out the response cord, if you'll, card, if you'll just intellectually agree that Jesus is the Savior of the world, then you will always be okay, and that is not the case. Jesus calls us to commitment and discipleship. That was the context of last week's message. I will not belabor it again. But notice what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I am tired of seeing people that are living lives totally contrary to the word of God, and the person of Christ, and yet saying to me, but pastor, I love the Lord. No. I'm not, no. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith but we are saved for good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. I am no longer accepting the person who says, I love the Lord, but their life is an absolute rebellion to everything he said and taught. You do not love the Lord, according to the words of Jesus. The second issue is the person who is saved, but is just struggling with sin. I'm in that club. Are you in that club? Okay, this is a big club. The person who is saved, but is struggling with sin. Sins more than they want to. And sin's really bad sometimes. I'm in that club. The Bible has to say to us in 1 John 2, one: If anyone sins, and again, it's written to Christians, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He represents us as having one hour salvation. He bears the wounds for all of eternity. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. That means to plead the case of our salvation before God the Father when we falter and we fail in sin. It says in 1 John 1, 9 and 10, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, it is expected in the New Testament that the Christian will still sin. We are still dealing with the sin nature until we go to be with Jesus. Salvation includes this. It's in three tenses, our salvation. It's in the past tense, and that we have been saved from the penalty of sin it's in the present tense and that we are daily being saved from the power of sin and it is in the future tense that we will be saved from the presence of sin. But until we are saved from the presence of sin and in glory with Christ, we will still deal with the sin nature that has been defeated but is still unfortunately present and fallen humanity. Paul spoke about it in Romans 7. I know the right thing to do. I keep doing the wrong thing. Darn it. Who's gonna save me? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. See, it's expected in the New Testament that the Christian is gonna sin, hopefully less and less as life progresses. There must be fruit. There must be transformation. If there's no change in your life, as I said last week, you have no reason to believe that you've been born again by the Spirit of God. Don't expect you to be perfect. Don't expect you to change overnight. But there must be fruit, evidence that Jesus is in our lives. When we blow it, there is forgiveness for every sin. That is salvation. That is the gospel. We cannot negotiate on that. That is salvation. That is the gospel. There is forgiveness. And the New Testament has abundant comfort and reassurance for the Christian who sincerely loves the Lord, wants to follow the Lord, confesses and believes, puts the weight of himself on the fact that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but fails. Look in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, for example. Verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. Our Savior, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, he understands us. He understands, and yet he himself is without sin. And he's compassionate toward us. And so when we're failing, when we're faltering, we can draw near with confidence, confidence to the throne. And that throne is defined by being a throne of grace. And there we can count on receiving mercy And may find grace to help in the time of need. You see, for the struggling Christian, the Bible never says to you, you're losing your salvation. It says to you, Jesus is wanting you to come back to him. Jesus is forgiving you. Jesus accepts you because of the work on the cross. Hebrews chapter 10, in case you don't believe me. Hebrews chapter 10, sorry, verse 14, speaking of Jesus. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind, I will write them, he says. And their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, to the Christian who's like me that sins more than he wants to, the Lord says, come on. I paid the price for that sin. I'll remember it no more. Come to me. So we have the person who was never saved but pretended to be or appeared to be. Make sure you're not in that camp. We have the person who is saved but struggling with sin. Welcome to that camp. And then we have the person that is saved but drifting or backslidden or neglecting salvation, as Hebrews 2 says. Now, for this person, the New Testament offers no comfort. Great degree of comfort for the one who is struggling but trusting the Lord and clinging to the Lord. For the one who is drifting away from the Lord, backsliding or just neglecting him and the salvation that he offers, no comfort in the New Testament for that person. As we discovered last week, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And we spoke about that at length, what that means. We can't expect to escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Look in Hebrews 3. Just a few pages back, Hebrews 3. Starting in verse 12. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. So what the New Testament does with a person who is backsliding or slidden or drifting slowly, remember the problem with drifting is it's almost indiscernible. What the New Testament does with that person is sternly warn them and beckon them to come back. Stern warnings. Now the fourth camp then is the extrapolation of the third and that is the person that was saved, was truly saved at one time but has become apostate and so has lost their salvation and that's what I believe Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 is speaking about. I'll read it one more time. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So the question then is, what does it mean to be apostate? Because we're not talking about merely drifting, we're not talking about just backsliding for a season. We're talking about going apostate. What does that mean? An apostate is a person who has renounced or denied Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. Renounced, denied Jesus Christ as his or her Lord and Savior. We sit here and we think, how can that happen? How can somebody be born again and then ever deny Jesus? It happens. It has happened. It is happening. I've seen it. You can read stories about it. Billy Graham had an associate who early on was a great evangelist with him who won apostate and denied the faith after winning thousands to the Lord. It happens. Now, they can be an apostate in word or possibly in deed. And that's subjective. And that's difficult. And we shall not be the judge of that. Only the Lord shall be the judge of that. But they can be apostate in words saying, no, I'm not a Christian anymore. I don't believe in that. No, I don't believe Jesus is the only way. No, he's not my savior. That was just a phase. Whatever, I'm done with that. Or they might never say that, but live that way. That's a difficulty. So scripture seems to indicate that we have to continue in belief and continue in faith to be saved. Think about it logically. It makes perfect sense. If someone was once saved and then denied Jesus Christ and the work of the cross, why would we then expect Jesus to save him or her? If they're saying, no, I don't want it. I don't believe. I don't trust. No. Why would we expect Jesus to save him or her? We want him to for sure because we all know people like this. And that's much easier. That's much more comfortable. We want him to absolutely. But listen, we are talking about a holy God that owes nothing to humanity. Which is why Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3, the subject of our sermon last week says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We're talking about a holy God that owes nothing to humanity. And we're talking about a Jesus who said this. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, he said, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will confess him before the Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before man, I will also deny him before my Father. Who is in heaven? I think that's exactly what Hebrews 6 is talking about. Someone who has denied Jesus Christ. And the context of Hebrews is that they're in danger of doing that before society because they're being persecuted and they're afraid. They're in a difficult situation. What the author of Hebrews says is hold on, hold on. The protocol for difficulty is to hold to Jesus, not deny Jesus. Now understand this. This does not hear this, this is very important. This does not make keeping salvation dependent on works. That is not what we're saying. It does not make it dependent upon works. We are saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2.8 9 says. We are saved by grace through faith. We must continue in grace and faith, not works. We're not talking about having to do works to keep salvation. Works are the evidence of salvation. But you don't do them to keep salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, not works. We must continue in grace and faith, not works. And as long as we continue in belief, then we have security and we have assurance. Somebody denies Jesus Christ, they lose us, things. Now, you are still saying, no, that person was never saved. Because that is the most popular mantra. We want to say, once saved, always saved. I desperately do. But I must be honest to the scriptures. And and so the visceral response is, no, 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 they were never saved. There are those people, but here's where it gets difficult. Okay, follow me on this. We want to say they were never saved because we believe in the foreknowledge of God. At least this church does. We believe that God knows everything, both actual and possible. Okay, not everybody believes that in modern Christendom. We do. And so it, it would seem to us then that if God saved somebody, if they were going to go apostate, in his foreknowledge, he must have known that. So it would seem that he made a mistake. Or possibly that he was deceived. On that very point, Gleason Archer, who's a great defender of the faith, whom I respect very much, and I have his book, says, God is never satisfied with counterfeits. He only accepts the real thing. He can never be deceived. Even by the most pious poses, he reads our hearts. Therefore, he would argue that there's no way that somebody could be saved and later on deny Jesus Christ. The Lord would have known that in the beginning and never saved that person. That does seem logical, but... Is not that exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden? Are we to think that the Lord didn't know that humanity would fall? Did he miss that in his foreknowledge? Did he make a mistake? No! He did not make a mistake, nor did he miss that in his foreknowledge. He made them, and he loved them, all the while knowing that they would reject him. Why did he do that? Oh, brother, that's another sermon. (laughs) I haven't actually figured that sermon out yet, but it's another one. He wasn't deceived. He made them with the capacity to walk away. And in his foreknowledge, he knew they would, and they did, and God did it anyway. So, in my humble opinion, according to my studies, not influenced by anybody else, I believe that the scriptures indicate that one can be truly saved and then cease to believe and so lose their salvation. And I think that the Bible says all over the place that we have to continue in a state of belief. Let me offer you just a couple more salvations. Can you guys give me a few more minutes? Yeah, of course. Look what 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 says. I have all these on the PowerPoint, the ones that aren't in Hebrews. It says... Paul writing, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. He's talking about saved Christians. By which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Which seemed to indicate that we need to continue in belief. I mean, duh. Duh. Of course we have to continue in belief. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, non-believer, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, believer, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, saved, if indeed You continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It's exactly what Hebrews chapter two was saying to us last week. We must therefore now pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. And if we drift away and ultimately neglect that salvation, what makes us think we will escape? Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Hebrews 3, 6 says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. You must continue in belief and in faith. Same thing in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. We already read it in context of 12 and 13. We'll just read verse 14 of Hebrews 3. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We've got to continue in belief and in faith. Hebrews chapter 10. Look there, please. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised for yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith continue in faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him shrink back drift apostatize but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul it seems clear to me that we've got to continue in faith. Last one that we'll turn to Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation, chapter 3. Go ahead and later on read the first three chapters of Revelation and see all the times where we are told that we have to continue in faith, where we have to persevere, where we have to hold fast our confidence. Read that later on. We'll just look at one little vignette. Revelation chapter three, starting in verse one, Jesus speaking to the church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. Sounds like a church that has been drifting. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it. Remember what you have heard, just like Hebrews. And keep it and repent. If, therefore, if you do not awake, I will come like a thief and you will not know at which hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse five, look. He who overcomes, continues in faith and in belief, shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father, and before his angels? Why would Jesus say that he will confess their name before the Father unless there was not the chance that he might deny their name before the Father according to what he said in Matthew 10, 32, and 33? Why would he say, I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life unless it was possible to have your name blotted out of the book of life? And he says, if you overcome, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. These passages seem clear to me that we need to continue in belief, continue in faith. And if we do, we have absolute assurance and absolute security. You keep believing and trusting and clinging to Jesus and this isn't even an issue. You drift, you backslide, you're in danger of disbelief, you're in danger of apostasy, you can lose your salvation that way. If you're drifting in any way, the Word of God simply says to you to repent, to get right, to come home very quickly. It's very dangerous to drift. Having said all that, I must tell you that there are many other scriptures that, taken in and of themselves, would seem to indicate once saved, always saved. I will tell you that, in my estimation, there are more scriptures that would lead us to believe once saved, always saved, than the position I presented to you. But see, the problem is they both exist. And, and, and the Bible, doctrinally speaking, is not a democracy. We can't say, well, there's more verses for once saved, always saved, than there is losing your salvation for apostasy, so they win. <laughs> that is not how the Word of God works. It's not either or. It's both and. There's a way in which they are reconciled, harmonized, in which they interact and work together. But for those of you who, me, for all of us who love these verses, here's a couple of them, and then we're finished. I'll just read them to you. These would seem to indicate, once saved, always saved. I mean, it's glorious. These are written to the Christian. You should know these and cling to these. If you're drifting, you better read Hebrews 6. Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's all past tense. Done deal. Once saved, always saved. Oh gosh. John 10, 27 through 29. My sheep... Hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Security. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, a promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Sealed in the Holy Spirit. That's like forever language. Jude 24 and 25, I love this one. for being able to lose your salvation when you deny the faith, and now you just contradicted your faith with all these other verses. You see, I want you to be Bereans. I don't want you to follow someone blindly. I want you to know the whole counsel of the word of God, and to study it, and to come to reasonable biblical conclusions. And if you are once saved, always saved, I love you, and nothing changes in our church or in our life but you've got to be a student of the Bible. And if you're clinging to Jesus Christ, you have nothing to worry about. You will falter, you will fail. He is still able to present you blameless. If you are drifting, I would worry and I would get right. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. Lord, we just ask that you take all these passages and just apply them to our lives wherever we are. Some of us need the comfort that the New Testament offers us. Some of us need that warning. Holy Spirit, you alone know our hearts, where we are and what's going on. So we ask that you come to minister to us. And we ask, Lord, that there be no fear in this place for those who shouldn't fear. And Lord, I would just add this word to the congregation, that if you're afraid that you've lost your salvation because of disbelief, you haven't. It's the person who is denying and doesn't care. Lord, remove fear from your people. Reveal hearts. Convict us of sin, but surround us with songs of deliverance. Thank you that as long as we're hanging with you, we are totally secure and absolutely sure. And that you're a great God and Savior. Prayer team is here if you have needs. Communion and the carpets are here as well.